Blog Talk Radio. He's a man who's going to tell you like it is. You can never be afraid of something that you don't know about. Now that's ignorance. And for us, ignorance is not bliss. He's a man who's not afraid to talk about the real issues and not skate around it. Don't you think it's about time that you got tired of where you are? I mean, you have got to be ready for God to do something for you and let him move. He's a man who loves his God, his country, and his people. I'm going to be honest with you. I'm not too fond of the political state of the world, and particularly the U.S. as it is right now. But if you want change, you have to make it happen. You can't keep settling for less than what you ought to have. He's a man who's sowing seeds of life, love, and liberation to anybody who's willing to hear. There comes a point in time where everybody just needs to shut their mouth up and listen to God. And God is the one who will lead us and God is in our truth. He'll tell us everything we need. That covers every area, every facet from politics to church to you name it. God's got it covered. He's a man that seeks the heart of God for the people of God. You're listening to Zero Out of the Day with Pastor Lorenzo Neal. afternoon and welcome to Zero Today. I am your humble host, Pastor Lorenzo Neal, hailing from Cajun Land, USA, here to present you with seeds of wisdom, insight, empowerment, and liberation. Here to present you with that knowledge that you can use and be uh, implied to your life. And what's always, we are all about empowering you, our listeners, to knowing, being, doing, impacting the world around you. And as always, you're welcome to join us on this illuminating journey. There are several ways you can do so. The main way, if you would like to get your thoughts, insights, information, dialogue on the air, you can call 347-237-5230. You can also uh, visit our Facebook page, Zero Network on Facebook, and, of course, the page on Ballot Talk Radio. Also, hit us up at Twitter. Uh, the, the Twitter page for the show is at Zero Radio. And my personal Twitter is at Prophesy. Um, and also hit us up at Pastor Lorenzo Neal at gmail.com if you'd like to communicate with us there. We are uh, we are here today, and we're just glad that the Lord has allowed us to be here. Um, I, I don't have a lot of news. I'm just going to get straight into prayer, and we're going to get into the discussion today um, because uh, it's a very pressing pressing discussion. So let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, we thank you for today. We praise you and give you honor and grace and love for just allowing us to be here. Now, as we recognize this is the day you have made, help us to choose to rejoice and be glad in it. Let the words of our mouth and the meditations of our heart be acceptable in your sight. God, our rock and our redeemer, in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Um, Usually I would try to have something funny in the news to start off this broadcast I try to find interesting stories to make us laugh and get a little thing going but um, I think I need to spend a lot of time perhaps more time than I would usually spend on any any other subject to address a very very tragic event that happened just a week ago at the Emmanuel African Methodist Episcopal Church in Charleston, South Carolina. The tragedy of a young white male walking off the street into a Bible study, an intimate Bible study, sitting and listening as commentary and dialogue and teaching was going forward welcomed by a small group of people who have had known the love of God and realized it was their responsibility to be given to hospitality. They were given to hospitality, welcomed this young man into their intimate space, 
And the young man, though at one point reluctantly, pulled out his weapon and within moments massacred nine individuals. It's been a it's been a, a, a week of reflection for those of us who are members of the African Methodist Episcopal Church, a church that's rich in history, a church that is more than just an organism and a body of believers. We are fellowship of believers. We are a family, a connectional church. It is one that I am proud to be named among as an itinerant elder and as a pastor, having traveled in this church for a number of years, I have been grieved over this last week. And yes, I've shared in press conferences and I've shared in prayer vigils, but most of all, I've shared in the grief, the grief of a connectional body on five different continents in Africa, South America, the Caribbean, Europe, in Asia, Pakistan, and India, and here in the States. To have that solemn, sacred space become a place of martyrdom is both something to celebrate and something to mourn. And so um, the day, this broadcast, we will be observing the celebration. We'll be celebrating these martyrs of faith. And just like the martyrs that we espouse in Scripture, the martyrs that we espouse in church history, so may the names of these nine people go forward in like manner that they will be recognized for who they are, beloved children of God, beloved people of faith, beloved members and clergy of the African Methodist Episcopal Church. So having said all that today, our discussion is about race, faith, and country. And the battle that is being formed and has been going on for centuries here in this country, but is particularly within the last eight, I'd say from 2007, uh, really about 2008, has come heightened with the election of our president, Barack Hussein Obama with the all but tragic uh, defamation that went forth on his pastor Jeremiah Wright and with the many, many atrocities and racial schisms that have gone forward over the last six and a half, seven years. Uh, it, it's been it's been tough. Now I want to preface this by saying, as we go into this, as I go into this discussion, I'm going in it. I'm not trying to be biased. I'm, I'm not. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I'm not trying to be unbiased. I am biased. I'm very biased. I'm very biased because I am, as stated before, a part. Of the legacy of Richard Allen, founder and first bishop of the African Methodist Episcopal Church. Then Mark Vesey, Morris Brown, and the many, many other laborers in the field who went on before me so that I can have the privilege to do this show, 
to pastor at New Bethel African Methodist Episcopal Church to serve this present age, my calling to fulfill. So I am biased. I'm grieved. And I'm grieved not because of the act. I'm grieved because the act has become something that it is is morphing into something that is unbeneficial to the people to the country it's being politicized and i can't fathom why people politicize such a thing liberals are making it about gun control there are those conservatives who are making it about gun rights either way either way it, it takes away from the humanity of those who lost their lives and now the rhetoric and narrative is coming is is one about a flag, a symbol. And yes, that symbol represents so much. But yet so does the cross. Matter of fact, people fail to realize the cross was a terroristic symbol in it of itself. The cross, the whole point of the cross that the Romans used was to show that they were in control. They used that cross as a means of reminding people that they were oppressed. And we, and those who followed the way, those who followed the Christ, those who followed Jesus of Nazareth, took that symbol and made that symbol of oppression, made that symbol one of victory. And so, you know, I'm going to talk about all of that. I'm going to talk about all of that, but um, I just I just had to get that out first. I want us to remember the fact that more than anything else, more than anything else, this is not just about a flag, a gun rights, a gun control. This is about faith. Faith is about nine, twelve people who were assembled at a church and nine people who realized that this was part of their duty and devotion. A lot of the things I've been asked about this week has revolved about around the question of why and and how. How could God allow this and why weren't the people and, and why wasn't the pastor discerning the spirit? Could not they see or discern that this young man was troubled and ready for something dangerous? You know, part of me wants to say yes, it probably should have but you know, pastoring in a black church, I pastored in the I pastored in the city, I pastored in the, the country. In, in in all realms that I pastored in the black church, and I do mean black church intentionally. I I, I know some folk want to say that you know that's the problem is the black church and the white church, and no, it's the problem is not that we have a black church and a white church. The problem is we've had a church that has been oppressed, and a lot of times those who were doing the oppression were. Of fairer skin. In other words, they were white. You know, it was a long time. It wasn't until just about 50 years ago that most, uh, most of the rally cries against people of color were led in the church. White pastors were... Encouraging members to discriminate, shunning those who would not do so. And only recently, we're seeing where integrated churches are becoming more and more uh, visible. But there's still a problem. You, you, it's very unlikely that you'll find 
a black pastor leading a largely predominantly white congregation. But you will find white pastors leading a predominantly black congregation. And there's nothing wrong with that. I'm not saying that. That's one here. Uh, I, I, I watched. There's a there's a local assembly here, uh, and the, the pastor is it's a Pentecostal assembly and uh, a Pentecostal church, and the pastor is both white and female. <laughs> She's a white female, but her congregation is predominantly black, and you know they don't make a big deal about it. She preaches like a black person, you know. She's you know she can she can she can bring it, she can bring it, and well versed in scripture, well versed in homilies, you know homiletics and hermeneutics, you know. But she can bring it, and uh, you know. So, but I, I digressed on that. But we're just as a nation, literally. And sh- you got to understand how short a time 50, 60 years is. And that small amount of time. And I can say that now. I'm 40 years old, and and, and I, I see how small time is. And in short, in such a small amount of time, people just expected racism. To, it disappeared because now – Schools were integrated. Black and white kids were playing together. I mean, you know, I was bused to a white school when I could have walked, literally walked to the black elementary school. And friends, you know, some of my friends that uh, <laughs> stayed just a few blocks over because of the way they created busing zones. You know, they were able to go to the all black school and, you know, we were bused to the white, you know, to the, the inter uh, integrated school, but then by the time I got to junior high, it was less integrated, and by the time I got to high school, there was no. When I was in high school, the last white person that graduated from my high school graduated in 1989. I never forget her. And it was a black girl. I mean, a white girl. We had white teachers, but we didn't have any white students that I can recall. I, if there was one, I don't recall seeing. Now we had a whole lot of white light skinned <laughs> whole lot of light skinned blacks. But and the the zoning was so crazy because there were kids who stayed just like I said, block over, who were being bused to the predominantly white school, particularly because they wanted, you know, for athletics. And I you know that wasn't that wasn't the white folk were was like we know we're we're not trying to hide the fact you know these black neighborhoods got the better students athletes we want their athletes and they did that now you know when you think about schools particularly in the south and at the college level predominantly white SEC the Southeastern Athletic Conference is the most dominant. Athletic conference in the country, schools like LSU, Alabama, Georgia, Florida, um, who else? Arkansas, South Carolina, now Mizzou, and Texas A&M, Vanderbilt. You know those schools. Uh, don't and I I I don't even know how I miss Ole Miss and Mississippi State. The whole of this life that we have come to experience in America in the last uh, 50 years has been one that has revolved around the idea that there are no more racist people. We are equal. We, we uh, And think about it, you know, in the 70s, every opportunity, 60s and 70s, opportunities open for black people. Black men, in particular, to be involved in politics. Black women to get involved in in all things in the world. Black people moved out of the ghetto into the suburbs, and then re- <laughs> because of that move, white folk moved further into the suburbs, and we saw the deterioration of our community in a lot of cities like Detroit, like Jackson. Like other, 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 other metro, uh, metropolitan areas saw the deterioration, economical deterioration, property value, because, you know, folks weren't paying taxes. Then you had the white people who were allowing 
You know, they like, look, we sell our property, they sell it to somebody and rent it out, you know, vetting renters. And so the neighborhoods just got worse, crime infested, all kinds of things. There are a number of variables. I know it seems like I'm rambling, but I'm getting to a point. You just, just, just stay with me. I'm getting to a point. But now, because of what happened last week, everyone's eyes, those who were not black and those who who are black but thought that they were not affected by their skin color, they thought they were being judged by the content of their character, now realize that the demon of racism has not gone anywhere. Matter of fact, it's so int- – I, I, I have to go with, agree with uh, – President Obama was on a podcast a couple of days ago, and he made the remarks that racism is ingrained in our DNA as a country. And, I, and, and you know, he went on to say, you know, racism is more than just saying not, – not saying the, the word nigger in public. You know, <laughs> and he's been he's been chastised <laughs> by bluffing black and white people for saying, well, well, how could you say the N word? And I, I put on my Facebook page, I said, uh, you white folk have been calling him black, and then you've been you've been defending those of black folks, black boys, uh, rappers, and all those who use the N word, who say the word nigger, saying that it's a term of endearment. And yet he's not allowed to say it in this moment that is clearly necessary for him to articulate what it is. Because they are calling him a nigger. They may not be calling him to the face, but I'm guaranteeing you in the back wall, in the back rooms, in the meeting halls, they are saying that nigger president. Our own black folk are doing it. <laughs> Jesse Jackson, when he was running, he was saying it. So it's not, it's not <laughs> the idea of this, this we shall overcome, we have overcome, you know, it was fantasy. And it has not gone away. And this fantasy has now come to light. People have now awakened to the reality that there are still pockets of persons. And I'm not talking about these skinheads and these, you know, these folk who white wear the white robes. You know, they they're dubious. They they they're only doing it to be seen. They're just making the rhetoric. But you have these, like this young man. I will not call his name because I understand that by calling the name of a demon, you give it more power. And I refuse to give that person any more power. That he has already given himself and taken, thought he had enough to take. So our lives have been shaken with a very, very disturbing truth this week. And the intersection of this disturbing truth is race and faith. And I in I interject country in that. But it's pretty much just race and faith. Intersection, that, that intersection, the intersection of those two have come to the forefront of all of the dialogue and all of the commentary and all of the narrative that have been presented over the last seven days or six days regarding this tragedy. And the reality is that it has been swept under the rug far too long. And we have got to deal with this as it is. We can't, you know, we can't skate around it. We have to address it head on. I've been glad the last several days that I've been with white pastors and white clergy and white people who expressing both condemnation for the young man and his act, but also trying to their best to express a sense of identity as a member of the body of Christ. As Paul writes in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, we are all members of one body. Though we have separate functions and separate roles, separate identities, 
we are still yet one body, and we are together collectively the bride of Christ. With hope that the bridegroom will come and receive us unto himself as one without spot, blemish, or wrinkle. But what we see, what we are seeing now is a sad undertone, not an overtone, but an undertone of this. If let me let me put this in my you know, let let, let me get to my, my musical roots. We have been inverting the root of this matter. And in music, in, whenever you invert a chord, all you do is you take what the root is and stack it onto something on top of what's on top of it. For example, chord of C, E, G, when you invert it, first inversion, the C is removed from the bottom. The E becomes the bottom, the G becomes the middle, and the C comes on top. And that's basically all we've been doing. That's, that's for the last 50 years or so, that's all we, we've been inverting this, this dialogue and allowing distractions such as upward mobility, political engagement, and for us nice black preachers, better Worship facilities, better worship, better worship opportunities. We've inverted the reality. We've inverted the reality that 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 that, that, that racism has gone away. We inverted the reality that that all we have done is taken something and made it something else. It sounds different, but it's the same thing, just stacked differently. While the root may not be the same, it is. It incorporates the exact same thing. The notes don't change. They're just positioned differently. And what we are seeing now is a repositioning of a same argument that we've been doing. Repositioning of the same issue, and 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 in this particular inversion, we're seeing not the we're seeing the intersection of faith, race, and country as the the chordal triad, triad, faith, race, and country. Because for white folk, country and faith is almost interchangeable in some in some particularly here in the South. Here in the Deep South, in South Carolina, in Louisiana, especially here in Mississippi, <laughs> in Alabama, and Arkansas, and all the other places here in the Deep South, especially Texas, everything is big in Texas. When you talk about faith, it automatically injected that country is is a part of that. That's not why they're so adamant about this this. Argument is new narrative that's been added into this about the Confederate flag, and historically, every you know, if you take the time to really study it, you realize that the flag that's flying over the the capital of South Carolina, the the one that we revel, and some people revel in, especially rednecks and all that folk, all those you know, is not the historical flag of the Confederate states. There are at least three different ones, particularly one from 1861 to 1863 did not even look like the one that has become the, the symbol of everything that is racist. And, and, and let me say this. I, I've been a victim of racial discrimination. I know what it's like to be racially profiled. I know what it's like to walk into a room when white folk are there and they look at you like, what are you doing here? I know what it's like to be a part. I'm a Republican. <laughs> I know what it's like to go to a Republican meeting and they're like, why are you here? You're not supposed to be here. Go, you know, shouldn't you be a Democrat? Shouldn't you, you know? And you espouse the same ideologies and 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 and, and views and shared sentiment, and they don't even want you there. And then they turn around and. Exp- 
you know, spew out rhetoric that <laughs> well, I'm getting off on the tangent there. But the idea of race and faith and country has really been really, really, really been a a a wick waiting to be ignited for decades. It's a wick that now has been lit. And now that it has been lit, the question is, are we going to let it burn or are we going to blow it out and turn on something else? I'm going to take a quick break. And uh, when I come back, I, w- I want to talk about some other things that um, the idea of forgiveness, the idea of where do we go now, and uh, I especially want to deal with the black church. So I'm going to take this break and get myself, get my thoughts together before I come back. But listen, if you want to get in on the dialogue, 347-237-5230, that's the number to call if you want to do that. I'm I'm welcoming dialogue if you I know this is a late Wednesday afternoon edition but you're still welcome hit me up in the chat room um if you if you would like to um do that the chat room is open you can you can um open you can share some dialogue there also but I'd love to hear what you're thinking about this as I go out into this break um so We'll be back after this. This weekend, uh, the weekend of June the 28th, 29th, 30th, and July 1st, I want to be the one to invite you to come down and celebrate with the African Methodist Episcopal Church as we hold our general board and council bishops. This is a celebration because not only will we be proving the resilience of our great great Zion, but we're also – I'm proud because – my bishop, the Right Reverend Julius McAllister Sr., will be invested as the president of the Council of Bishops. And we'd love to have you there. Come down to New Orleans, the city of New Orleans. I know Essence Festival is going on, but you would want to come and miss, you don't want to come and miss your blessing. Yeah, they have a lot of stuff going on, but you can't do it like the AMEs do it. You need to come. Join us at the Riverside Hilton, downtown New Orleans, July 29th, 30th. And the first for our council of bishops and general board, and I'm going to tell you, you will be blessed. It's nothing like worshiping with the African Methodist Episcopal Church. Come on out and enjoy yourself and be blessed. This is my invitation to you. You're going to love it. All right. See you there. At Farmers, we make you smarter about insurance because what you don't know can hurt you. What if you didn't know that posting your travel plans online may attract burglars? Talk to Hawaii. What if you didn't know that as the price of gold rises, so should the coverage on your jewelry? Ah. What if you didn't know that kitty litter can help you out of a slippery situation? The more you know, the better you can plan for what's ahead. Talk to farmers and get smarter about your insurance. We are farmers. Bum, ba, da, bum, 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 bum. With the Name Your Price tool, you tell us what you want to pay, and we give you a range of coverages to choose from. Who is she? That's Flowbot. She's this new robot we're trying out, mostly for, like, small stuff. Wow. Look at her go. She's pretty good. Pretty good. Hey, Flowbot. Great job. Oops. Uh-oh. Flowbot is 
broken. The Name Your Price tool, only from Progressive. Call or click today. How much money do you need to make each month? That's the first question we'll ask when you decide to start your own home business through IncomeAtHome.com. As a success coach, I'm here to guide people like Karen who need to earn serious money from home. We were living payday to payday, and with four teenagers at home, we were worried. By the third month, I was banking more than $2,600. After only 18 months, I was consistently earning more than $7,000 a month. Now, it's a six-figure income, and I'm paying cash for college for four kids. We found our way out of rat race. Listen, this isn't selling soap or energy water to your friends. This is a real business, bringing potential customers to your computer so you can earn money 24-7. Incomeathome.com is affiliated with a multi-billion dollar company and carries a triple A rating. So how much money do you need to earn each month from home? Visit Incomeathome.com right now for your chance to win $1,000. Who loves social networking as much as you? Identity thieves. They can find your personal information and do some serious damage, like your birthday or your mother's maiden name. You need a new friend, LifeLock. We scour billions of data points every day. And if we discover that any of your personal information is misused, LifeLock is there. Call us at 1-800-LIFELOCK or go to LifeLock.com today. Back to zero today again. I'm your humble host, Pastor Lorenzo Neal. And um, I, I uh, before I, before I go back on the second rant, <laughs> the second ramble, whatever you want to call it. Before I get to this, uh, I, I I read earlier this week uh, that the Lifetime docu reality show or whatever they call it, uh, preach has been canceled, and it's only been on. Twice, I believe it only aired two episodes. It was uh, Lifetime bought six episodes, which means four would not be aired. And you know, I, I apparently there was a petition that was went forth, and folk was complaining. And then there was also the fact that there were very, very low ratings. They needed so many. I think they needed close to, um, I, I, you know, so many millions, and they didn't get that. Uh, but either way, it got to X. The show got to X. Uh, and the star of the show, or the lead prophetess of the show, um, has <laughs> she she went to her Facebook account and just went out on some folk, and you know was blaming individuals for the reason that they were off the air, and um, you know I can understand that to a degree. I I personally didn't like the show. I watched it because I want I just you know. I was being nosy. I just wanted to see what it was going to be like. Uh, but there are some very disappointed prophetesses right now and some very disappointed um, protégés. And there are a whole lot of disappointed people. It's caused a little schism. <laughs> but either way, you know, it makes me, it makes me wonder why, why was not such a rally uh, made against... Um, the preachers of L.A. and the preachers of Detroit. What was the difference between those two uh, shows and this show? Was it because there were women? Uh, the entire cast were women. And of course, preachers of L.A. Uh, while the cast was not women, uh, there uh, the, the wives and girlfriends of the uh, preachers were featured occasionally. And preachers of Detroit, you had the wives, girlfriends, and uh, children of the the uh, pastors featured in the show. 
So, uh, you know, it is what it is. You know, I still praise their success. You know, they still have ministry to do, you know, just because it won't be on a uh, recognized uh, <laughs> syndicated channel does not mean that they can stop them from doing ministry. I mean, if they, as one said, is a major prophet, then she don't need a major network to help. <laughs> uh, anyway, let me stop. But I just I want to share that with you. All right, that that that's out the way. Uh, let me get to this. Um, the second little thing I want to talk about. I am a member. I am a pastor, and I am an elder in the African Methodist Episcopal Church. I don't hide that at all. Matter of fact, it's one of the things perhaps. One that I identify with, um, the bigger thing. And while some will be traveling to South Carolina to later rest, uh, Reverend, the others, um, we will be gathering in just a few days in the city of New Orleans as we do, well, not as we do, but every year we. In the interim of our general conference that's held every four years, in the interim of that, we have our general board meeting with our council of bishops leading the way in that meeting. And our general board, which are both, uh, they are elected clergy and laity of our connectional body who review our legislation and other things, and they carry on business of the church in the interim of the general conference, which takes place every four years. Our senior bishop, uh, Bishop John R. Bryant, has led the council of bishops and the general board in adopting a theme over this quadrennial of discipleship. And we've had several, several, um, uh, minor, you know, underlying things as we progress through the year, all revolving around discipleship. And, um, let's see if I can pull it up real quick. I had it up here a second ago. I mean, not a second ago, earlier today. Uh, right here we are. Let me, let me pull this up real quick. But we've been focusing on discipleship. And the first year in 2013 was the goal of discipleship. The 2014 was the cost of discipleship. This year has been the evidence of discipleship. And next year going into our general conference, which will be also our 200th anniversary as an incorporated body, religious body, uh, will be the harvest of discipleship. I've been questioned a lot um, about why do we, why are black people so faithful to the church? More so, why do we put all of our time, money, and effort into a an institution that, in many other faces of American society, is diminishing? It's true that the Black churches' role in the black community has diminished somewhat. It was at one point, and I remember even as a child, as a kid preacher, white politicians and black politicians knew they needed the church. They needed to go to the church. They needed the people of the church. They needed the pastor to validate them and their cause. And they knew that if they could rally the black church on specific issues, that they were guaranteed a win, a victory. That's what happened with the black civil rights, with the civil rights movements of the of the um, mid twentieth century. It was the black church leading the cause. It was black pastors. And laity, the charge, rallied, rallies, and particularly like the one in Selma, 
rally at AME Church. One in other, many, many, many other places. But discipleship has a cost. We go into church realizing that one day we're going to die. But we do not live as those who have no hope to death. We realize that one of these old mornings, one in that great getting up morning, we're going to fare thee well, cross the old Jordan, get our mansion in heaven, walk the streets of gold, yon pearly gates. Yeah, yeah. But we, we really don't commit to the cost of discipleship. And what this tragedy really brought about was the the reality that discipleship costs something, including your own life. These people gathered in the Bible study, and in that Bible study, I don't know what they were discussing. I don't know who was, I mean, I've forgotten, I read who was teaching. The pastor was not teaching the Bible study, if I understand it correctly. I could be mistaken, but the pastor wasn't. Uh, but the, in that Bible study... I'm quite sure the issue of discipleship came up. And if that did come out, if that was a part of the dialogue in any form, I'm quite sure the idea of death probably came with it. And we like to preach, you know, one of the old days. We're going to put on our robe, tell the story, how we made it over. And that is going to be, you know, that is the pinnacle of the black church experience. That is what made us unique from our uh, European counterpart and our Caucasian counterpart. The notion that there was something greater on the other side. The slaves look forward to. That we must once again ascribe and, and pick up. We've always, as a black Christian, beyond our faith. And by faith, I mean the, the faith communion, our denomination. We understood that our denomination did not separate us because we could be Baptist, we could be Methodist, we could be one thing, we could be another, but it wasn't going to stop us from being children of God. That was one thing that wasn't going to stop us. As a matter of fact, I <laughs> I pastored our church, and one Sunday, and we you know we were bi monthly service, bi monthly church. So first and third was our Sunday, and second fourth Sunday they went to the Baptist church, and every now and then you couldn't tell the difference. They get get started singing Dr. Watts hymn, I know the Lord. Yeah, I don't know. I'm just messing. <laughs> well, that's a prayer. Ah. <laughs> and I'd be looking like, wait a minute, wait a minute. <laughs> Where, which 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 one am I? Am I Baptist this week? And, and, and I couldn't tell with my own preaching. I'd tune up. Take him to the cross, and you know, in the Baptist preaching tradition, you had to put Jesus on the cross, take him off the cross, put him in the grave, take him out the grave, and you didn't do that. You didn't preach. <laughs> but we've now gotten back to this reality that discipleship costs something, and I think what we must do as we move forward in the time to come, particularly as a black church. We have to reassess what we value more. We have to really reassess what we value more because we realize now that even in our sacred space, the devil can still be busy. And I know we like to say the devil busy, but I'm talking about in a more literal way now. You know, that was more in a sarcastical way. We would say, ooh, the Lord, the devil, the, the devil is busy. When somebody would do something we didn't like or somebody would say something or, you know, 
It was mess in the church. The devil is busy. But now we realize that this is a literal thing. The devil is literally busy seeking whom he may destroy. He is only out to steal, to kill, and to destroy. And God, God, through Christ, wants to give us life and give it more abundantly. It's a heavy burden to know that discipleship comes with a cost. It's a heavy burden to know that even though we have this great these great facilities, we have these we have better trained clergy, we have more enthused, energetic uh worship experiences, there's still a cost. The goal of our discipleship is not to build a greater facility, not to add number that and those are great. Those are great. Adding to the church is what God desires. And we read in the book of Acts within the first four chapters, we see how God added to the church daily as he saw fit. So so that that that's that's good and that's noble. Pastors, you should be empowering your people to go out and evangelize and go out and to the marginalized in the community and say, Come you uh you know, the wedding feast has been prepared and there is a wedding for you to attend and all you have to do is come. You're no stranger, but come. And but the goal of discipleship that we should imply, that we should we should make sure that our, our people understand is ultimately to be one with him. To know that he died that we may live, and that we die to live with him. Now for those who may be arguing, well, you know, death is the end and that's that's it. Well, you can have that. That's that's good. If that works for you, that works for you. If you want to say that there is nothing after death that, you know, that's, you know, we just go back to the dust from which we came. Wonderful. But my hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. I dare not trust the sweetest rain, but only lean. Jesus name. On Christ the solid rock I stand. All other ground is sinking sand. My hope, blessed assurance that Jesus is mine is a foretaste of glory divine. It's not what I'm seeing now that matters. Because what I'm seeing now is only temporary. What I'm experiencing now is only temporary. What I really am is beyond temporary. It is eternal. If I believe my body to be a temple, then my body is something that is eternal and not something temporal. The temporal will pass away. Even We see that even with the, the, the physical temple that the Jews worshipped in that was destroyed. When that, when that symbol of their identity, their national identity and their religious identity was destroyed, they too were destroyed. They too were dispersed. They were carried away, and they have not truly returned yet. But our temple is beyond that. Our temple, our hope is beyond this physical, temporal state of existence. I got a text from a very, 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 very important person in my life saying that today she was pledging to be slow to anger, to find the beauty and true meaning of life in all that she says and does. And I think that should be one of our goals of discipleship as believers. As we reflect on this, as we go forward, yes, we want to mend the, the wounds of racial injustice. And yes, we want to heal the pain and the grief of this tragic accident. But we can't go forward until we're willing to see beyond what we see and to live beyond where we live. To experience a transcending glory that can only come from God. And I'm not just trying to present I'm not trying to present this as some biased rhetoric alone. We got enough of that. I'm talking about a reality. I'm talking about a reality that is that that needs to become as real as the things that you touch, as the 
as the things that you see, as the things that you smell, and what you feel. For some, that may not make any sense. And I'm not asking for it to make sense. I'm just saying that it needs to be. We need to learn to be. In my Bible study yesterday, the noon Bible study, and I don't have a lot of time. I'm running out of time, but we talked about in Genesis 28 when Jacob was sent away by his father, Isaac, to go find a wife among his kinsmen. And in the interim of the of the travel, in the interim of his leaving his father and going to his kinsmen, he gets in a spot, lays down, gets a rock and lays his head on it. And the vision and dream is open of him, of heaven. And the ladder is coming down. He sees the ladder. He sees the angels going up and coming down. And at the top of it, he sees God standing there. And not God then declares to him, I am the Lord your God. I am the Lord your God. The God of your father Abraham. And of your father Isaac. This is our moment to experience that dream. Jacob, when he woke, he said the words that surely God was in this place, and I did not know it. And I told my people, we have to learn that it, sometimes it's in the places that we are both familiar with and unfamiliar with, but God is there. God is there. Waiting to reveal himself. And in the greater of the existential moment, God is there. And the greater extent of our celestial being, God is there. In the cosmological experience of human life, God is there. And we may not always discern or perceive that he's there, but he is there. And most times, he's there. We don't know it. Moses was at the burning bush. Well, he was <laughs> in the desert on the backside of the, or the, or the wilderness of the desert, however you want to say it. And there he saw this bush being burned on fire but not consumed. And he paid attention for a first time, having seen that bush maybe Every time he came, but for the first time, he was aware there was something different. And then it was that moment of awareness, transcending awareness, that God spoke to him through the bush and told him the place that he was standing on, he had to take off his shoes because it's holy ground. The ground didn't become holy when God said that it was holy ground. The ground was already holy. The ground was already there. But Moses now was aware that it was there, that the content of the ground was different from the content before. That that, that not really the content, but 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 the essence was different. He now realized that he was in a holy place. We are there. I believe we are at this moment now. I believe we are in this moment where we're finally being aware that God is. And that's enough. That God is. The I am is. He is present. He is here. And now we are able to know it. We are able to know him. And we are able to respond to the call that he is giving to us. And on that, i got to get out of here. <laughs> I've run out of time. I wish I could go a little longer, but i got to get out of here. But ponder on that for a moment. Ponder on that as we go forth. Pray for the people of Spartan. Pray for the members of Mother Emmanuel. Pray for the African Methodist Episcopal Church. Pray for one ye, ye one for another. And be going, go forth and do what God has called you and allowed you to do so that you can be a blessing to all you encounter. All right, I got to get out of here. This is Pastor Lorenzo Neal. Thank you for listening. God be with you. He's God. a man who's going to tell you like it is. You can never be afraid of something that you.